Dingmantics. Dingmantics. Quiet. Sam Dingman's about to say something. I'm going to take a deep breath right now. Dingmantics. So this past Monday night, I go to The Moth, and I put my name in the hat, and I'm really excited at the prospect of getting to perform, because I think I have a story that is funny and sincere and is really going to captivate the room. The theme of the Story Slam on Monday night was untold beauty, and I have this story from when I was a cab driver about how I engaged in this sort of magical thinking that somebody, specifically Jon Stewart, was going to get in my cab one day and was going to be so impressed by my wit and worldliness from my combination of skills as a trained theater maker and the real lived experience and point of view that I had cultivated as a cab driver, that he would hire me to work on The Daily Show. (laughs) This is something I dreamed about. And there was this other thing, too, which is that when you're a cab driver, you rely entirely on your intuition because there's no guaranteed income when you're a cab driver. You just have to go into the streets and drive to where you think the street hails will be. And you hope that if you get a street hail the passenger takes you to a location where there will be someone else who also wants a cab and that you will be able to string enough of these fares along to make enough money to get through the day. And I had really come to a place where I I thought that what was holding me back as an artist was that I didn't trust my intuition. And I thought, what if I make my entire income dependent on my intuition? If I do that, then... Mother Metropolis will reward me with this faded interaction with one of my artistic heroes, and I will have the life I dream of. That's really what I thought. (laughs) I I really did believe that that was going to be my story. And surprise, surprise, that is not what happened. What in fact happened is that my intuition about where fares would be was so bad that I would sometimes work entire 12-hour shifts and come home with 20 or $30 in my pocket, which meant that I would start working six, sometimes seven days in a row, sometimes double shifts just to try to cover the rent. And I was falling asleep in conversations with my friends and my family. I was losing weight because I couldn't afford to buy food, let alone pay the rent. I was wasting away. And all these people in my life were telling me, Sam, you got to stop doing this. Like, you're going to get yourself or somebody else killed. And then one day, hand to God, I fell asleep behind the wheel of my cab and woke up just in time to see none other than Jon Stewart 
stepping off a curb. He jumped out of the way of the cab. I hit the brakes just in time. And he looked through the window of the cab and just said, why? (laughs) Ever the reasonable man. And I didn't know why anymore. And so after that, I eventually quit cab driving and I got a job as an administrative assistant at this upstart tech company that was really setting the world on fire. And I would have these real conversations with my coworkers there where they would say, you know, this place is a rocket ship. And if you just keep it on an even keel, don't rock the boat, don't do anything unexpected, this could be your life for the rest of your days. You could ride this rocket ship into the sunset. Nothing but safety and security and guaranteed well-being. And I would have these conversations and I would sort of nod and say, yeah, sounds great. And sure, there are some parts of that that are great. (laughs) But I also know that I would get out of those conversations and I would go sit at my desk on the ninth floor of this office building and I would look down at the streets and see the yellow cabs snaking back and forth through the arteries of the city. And I would think, I know I am lucky that neither I or Jon Stewart is dead, but I have never felt less alive. Because it was very unlikely that one of my artistic heroes was going to just climb into my cab and hand me the future that I dream of. But there is no better feeling than waking up every day believing that they might. And so that is a condensed version of of the story that I was excited to tell at The Moth. And at The Moth, uh, if you've never been, at the start, the host runs you through the rules of the night. And there are not many rules. But one of the important rules is that the host looks out at the audience, and this happens before every open mic that they do, and the host says, the stories have to be true. And then the host usually kind of pauses and look at, looks out at the room. And then this particular host is Peter Aguero, one of the best hosts of Moth Story Slams. And he usually says, how do you know if a story's not true? You know. You just kind of know if somebody's pulling your leg. And he's right. That is the best way in a storytelling environment to tell if something's not true. Just listen to your instincts, right? Trust your intuition. And so over the course of the night at a Moth Story Slam, there are 10 stories. And so the first nine names are pulled from the hat. None of them are mine. And a couple of times in between stories... Peter, just conversationally, not because anybody who told a story seemed to have lied or anything, but just reminding the audience of the rules, said, remember, the stories have to be true. And then my name gets called for number 10. I'm going to close the show. So he brings me up on stage, and I get up there, and I go into my story, and it does not work. It just doesn't connect. I can feel as I'm telling it that the room is not with me. And one of the things that I feel unmistakably, I can't tell you how I knew this, it just feels like what happened, is that when I get to the end of the story and I bring the cab to a halt and I look up and I see that it's Jon Stewart that I have almost run over, the Jon Stewart, TV's Jon Stewart, I just don't think the room believed me that that's real. And 
I'm sitting here, just you and me and the moon cabin. It's real. That really happened. It's, it's burned into my brain, this experience of looking up and seeing John, I'm on a first name basis with him. Sure, I saved his life. I, I looked up and I saw John's face. And I know what John Stewart's face looks like. It was him. But I think because the room was a little bit primed to be on the lookout for exaggeration, I just don't think people went with me on it. Now, I want to say, I'm not looking to blame the host of the show or the audience for the fact that my performance didn't go well. I also think from a craft standpoint, there are a couple of things that I did in this performance that were not good. Among them, I had decided in my head before the show that this was a funny story and that when I shared these anecdotes of myself getting completely strung out on lack of sleep and economic desperation (laughs) and talking about, you know, how I believed in the power of magical thinking to save me from extreme fatigue and irresponsibility, I thought that was going to be a charming hoot. (laughs) And I also think that people were worried about me. Like, I, I, I think that people were listening to me share harrowing details of a life lived in an irresponsible way and growing concerned. And because the performer sharing those details was doing it in a way that seemed to expect these to be laugh lines, I think that was discordant and disorienting for them. And I I think that was another factor that prevented them from connecting. So there are very concrete ways in which I don't think that I delivered a good storytelling performance. But I also can't help wondering if some of what I think was disbelief in the audience has to do with this larger conversation that's going on where there are these stories that are starting to come out about performers, Hassan Minaj, the most recent one, who in their notionally autobiographical memoir performances have invented details have exaggerated reality in service of telling the emotional truth. I think that this is something that's in the air for us right now as a culture, is who is lying to us? Who is being truthful? And I think it's because we are more aware than ever that we are constantly being manipulated. The standards of truth in our politics have deteriorated to an embarrassingly low level as we watch the decline and decay of X or Twitter, um, it has become increasingly clear that the CEO with his finger on the buttons can decide what links are surfaced, what forms of information receive bigger play on this massive platform that millions and millions and millions of people rely on for information and what pieces of information are suppressed And we know that he's doing that. He doesn't even deny that he's doing that. It's just a known thing that he is serving his own self-interest with this extraordinarily powerful tool. And just the other day in The New Yorker, there was an extraordinary piece about this kind of pop sociologist guy, Dan Ariely. I think I'm saying that right who's sort of well-known for running these studies that suggest that there are these uncannily simple solutions to deeply entrenched 
problems. Like, for example, he's, he's famous for this study about car insurance that uh, if you just ask people to click a box attesting that they aren't lying when they tell you how many miles they plan to drive their car, then they're less likely to lie about it and we can save the poor insurance companies all this money. Thank you, Dan Ariely, for that service. And it, it came out in this New Yorker article that he made up the results or seems to have juked the results of the study that he became very famous for. One of the most successful podcast series running right now, Chameleon. It's all people who pull off these elaborate scams because they know that we want to believe. And none of this is new, right? But we're really saturated in it right now. And we are in a moment where we are pushing back a little bit at the idea that we're just supposed to take everybody at their word that they have our best interests at heart because we have been shown time and again that that is a foolish way to conduct your life. And live storytelling on stage in New York City is obviously a very low-stakes environment for the negative impacts of this degradation of trust to manifest itself. I'm not saying that uh, I am suffering greatly here, but I do think there is a chance that it is trickling down that far that there is a greater mandate on us as writers and performers of narrative nonfiction to seem as true as we are in our words. And hopefully we are being true. Hopefully we're not menaging it. I would be really curious to know if any fellow nonfiction storytellers are listening to this and feel the same way feel like they have noticed a, a shift in the winds of how nonfiction is perceived. Let me know at midnight at W-A-L-T dot F-M. Now, earlier this week, folks, on the main episode of the week, I told you we were going to have a special guest on the show, and we do. That special guest is my fiancé, Adrian. Now, Adrian has been a supporting character that has popped up in these conversations a few times. I've mentioned her in some of my intros and invoked her name in some of my interviews, and there's a reason for that. One of the things I love the most about Adrian is that she is a kindred creative spirit. And speaking of storytelling, that's how she and I met. We met through the live storytelling community in New York, and I saw her perform one night, and it just melted my brain. I, I had never seen anybody tell a story the way that, that she had. And if you want to hear the details about that, there's actually an episode of the podcast, Risk, about it. The episode is called It Is Happening Again. But Adrian is also a podcaster. And one of the things that has been really fun in our relationship lately is that as I was getting my act together to get the midnight disease off the ground, Adrian had been developing a show of her own that has just come out this week. And it's such a huge accomplishment. It's called A Race Around the World. 
and it tells the story of two female journalists who in 1889 raced each other around the world. Now, I'm guessing you are probably familiar with the book Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne, but you may not know that these two women actually did <laughs> that trip that Jules Verne wrote about as, as an act of speculative fiction in his book. These two women actually did it. Their names were Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bisland. And Adrian, over the course of this series, takes you through every single day of their trip, all the sights and sounds and emotional turmoil that they had to navigate doing this harebrained adventure at a time when it was very difficult, one, to travel, and two, to be a woman, not just in America, but in the world, which they saw a lot of <laughs> over the course of, of their respective trips. And it's filled with double-crossing and betrayal and love and loneliness and wonderful supporting characters. And Adrian wrote the whole thing, and she narrates the whole thing. She actually plays the roles of both Nellie and Elizabeth. Uh, she gives us their inner monologues, and we also hear from their original writings. It is a rollicking tapestry of a podcast, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. I know I'm biased, but I just think she has taken on something really important and made something really special here. And one of the things that has been cool about watching her make this show is observing her navigate her own personal midnight disease. You know, it's like having a front row seat to the creative clockwork of my love. And I'm so excited for her. And because the midnight disease is something that she and I talk about all the time, I wanted to record one of those conversations and to share it with you here because... My own relationship with the midnight disease is informed by the conversations I have with her about it. And I also really want you to hear more about what was illuminating her in her desire to tell this story, because it's a remarkable story. So that's what I'm about to play you here on Dingmantics this Friday, my conversation with Adrian about her new podcast, A Race Around the World, which is available wherever you're listening to this. You're talking on the mic mm -hmm. that you used to record all of the narration yeah. for... I think it's episodes one through five mm -hmm. of A Race Around the World, mm -hmm. uh, my newest audio adventure. Mm -hmm. Episode six, we did we did use a different mic. Oh, yeah. Put you on the M930 for I episode know, six. This one is the SM7B. You got it. I just want to make you proud, Sam. I just want you to know <laughs> that I'm paying attention. It is embarrassing how I feel towards you when you <laughs> say the names of microphones. <laughs> I've I've taken us in a direction that is not conducive to anything good. All right. So 
Adrian, I was thinking、mm-hmm. to start. It would be cool for you to. I, I thought it would be cool for us to both say how we remember you getting the idea to do this project. Because I wonder if our memories of it are the same. Wait, I love this because I've kind of been racking my brain of like, what was the day? Uh huh. I do remember we were in extreme lockdown, and I am originally from the Hudson Valley, and I corralled my family into helping us get a place where we could quarantine upstate.、Mm-hmm. Um, so we filled Sam's Toyota Corolla with audio equipment and garbanzo beans because、uh, we went to Wegmans and in Brooklyn, and it was it was literally the only things on the shelves, and it was like a pyramid of them. It was very dystopian, and we were like, I guess, and every other shelf was just like. Bear. That did make it sound like the only things on the shelves at Wegmans were garbanzo beans and audio equipment, which honestly、oh, <laughs> would have been amazing. If Wegmans ever does sell audio equi- equipment, we will never leave there. <laughs> so we go upstate. We hit the Taconic. We go upstate, and we quarantined on this sheep farm with friends, friends, and we had like our own little cabin, and I had. Just released my newest season of Strangers Abroad on the auspicious day of March sixteenth, twenty twenty. And as we, it's a travel podcast, and as we all know, twenty twenty was a great year for travel. And wait, 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 and wait, wait. So, wait. Can mm-hmm. I, I want to say something about this? These early days of the quarantine, mm-hmm. because this was this was kind of a pivotal moment、mm-hmm. um, for me in in getting to know you better.、Okay. Because we, we had been dating for three months, but we hadn't. Lived together, and now、yeah. all of a sudden we were spending every hour of every day together.、Yeah. And I knew that you had this morning routine because、mm-hmm. you had told me about it. You had told me about this routine you had, where you would get up and you have this vow of silence that you take, where you don't、mm-hmm. make sounds、um, for as long as possible in the morning,、mm-hmm. and that you had this sequence of exercises and morning pages and all, and. All these these rituals that you would do to kind of enter your creative self for the day, and one of the things that was really interesting to me about those early days on the sheep farm is that usually that was something that you did in private,、mm-hmm. but now I was observing you do it,、mm-hmm. and I wasn't just observing you do it; I was observing the totality of your focus on doing it to the、mm-hmm. point that I frequently thought you were mad at me. <laughs> Oh, oh no! For trying to do things like, you know, come in and be like crazy times, right?、Uh, here's a cup of coffee, and you would look at me like I'm in my zone right now. Like, please step away from that.、Oh、my God, I probably <laughs> shot daggers at you. I'm so sorry. Oh, the the and the daggers were. That's my Scorpio rising. I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. It, because I, I'm bringing this up because it was once I realized what was going on. It was very. Cool、hmm. to understand to to see to get a front row seat to <laughs> the intensity of your dedication.、Hmm. I think what you were picking up on is just like I am naturally very intense about my morning routine. I really mama bear that time because if you don't, it gets eaten away,、mm-hmm. and you cannot get that back. And I know myself well enough to know that. 
in the mornings, I am my most creative self, that the voice, the muse, whoever she is, is the clearest. And I don't want to let anybody else's voice in because then hers dissipates. It's like a vapor that kind of like Mm -hmm. wisps away. And I want to, as ephemeral as it is, I try so hard to hold on to it, sometimes a little too hard, you know, like, um, who's the guy in uh, of mice of men who like pets the bunny so hard that he oh, kills Lenny. it. Lenny. Sometimes I Lenny my. Sometimes I honestly Lenny my focus, my flow, because I'm like, people are gonna interrupt me, and then I end up stressing myself out. To anyways, right? Hence daggers. Hence daggers, and um, but also I think it's, I think I was definitely, I definitely felt insecure about it because people that I have lived, I was. I was very insecure because I didn't know how to articulate, hey, -hmm. this is what I need, because I was always so afraid of how people would perceive me and think that I was weird and some people didn't clock what I needed, Mm -hmm. even if I was as explicit as I thought that I was being. Mm -hmm. So I was mostly, I was probably like feeling a little insecure of like, please, come on. But I liked it like mm-hmm. i liked that it was that you had this weird thing <laughs> i thought it was you chose a weird lady so i thought it was interesting coming at you i thought no i it's just yeah. i thought it was i mean there's a couple things about it one is that it represented a level of discipline mm-hmm. that i have always struggled to find for myself i feel like i have these fleeting periods where i fall into a really defined routine and get a lot of great stuff done. And then I burn out really quickly because it's the level of intensity is very high. Hmm. And then when I start a new project and I think like, what was I doing on that last project that was so successful? I can't even remember what it was. Hmm. Like it, it, it's become a fever dream that I can't summon anymore. So the fact that you had this repeatable set of practices that you did and that you knew that if you stuck to them, you were going to be able to execute this season of your show that you were really excited about. Mm. I thought that was really admirable. Hot. Okay, admirable is fine. <laughs> That's fine. Well, so the morning routine is I get up and I do a variety of exercises. So that's anywhere from like lifting, yoga, going for a run. For me, I have found... When I run, I get into such a sweet, beautiful meditative state. And it is like being in a warm bath. And that is what makes the muse really shine. I don't know. I feel like it has to be something about, this sounds a little morbid, but I think it has something to do with cutting my oxygen off. That makes complete sense to me. That makes complete sense to me. you're, You're starving the the parts of your body that because you know like we call it a disease right the midnight disease and we have all these internal systems that normally keep us regulated and away from fanciful thinking because fanciful thinking is not practical totally so but when you exercise and you exert yourself physically those restraints that keep the fanciful thinking at bay are busy doing other stuff or you've exhausted them or tired them out. Right. And I think that does loosen the latch on the trap door where the muse lives to be yeah. like, ooh, the the systems are distracted. I can come out and 
you know, give Adrian ideas for scenes in her podcast right now. And this is why I am such a diva about it, or at least I'm a self-proclaimed diva about it. It is the best feeling I've ever felt mm. that I have that is self-generated, mm-hmm. that is has nothing to do with like sex, drugs, or alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's all me. What you is kn- it? What does it feel like? It's like it's like a humming kind of, and I think you and I have been speaking a humming. It's like a there's like a buzz that happens. Mm. Wait, let me ask you one more thing about the hum. Yeah, is yeah, it yeah. is it that you can hear a hum in it, your head? It feels like a physical buzzing. I it's like it. a very uh-huh. light, like a vibration. Vibration, yeah, a hundred percent. It's like the 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 tuning fork has been struck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of a hundred, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Um, so you you st- you get done swimming or running? Get done swimming or running. Stretch. I meditate for. Five to 15 minutes, depending on how much time I have, because I'm always trying to hit like 10 o'clock is when I start my morning pages. Does the hum get more intense during the meditation? It doesn't make it more intense, but it keeps it Mm -hmm. because what I'm so afraid of is when she's gone because this is what it is, is like I zoned out pretty much until I was like 10, 11 Mm-hmm. And I remember my daydream fantasies way more intensely than I really remember my childhood. Hmm. Or I remember scurrying away to the bedroom that I shared with my middle sister, Regina, mm-hmm. shutting the door and like playing in those fantasy worlds for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So those to me are more real. So like I love daydreaming like I love just being able to like zone out and let the wispy ideas bounce around so what the meditation does and with the meditation I am listening to bioral beats so I am listening to some kind of note or escalation of notes and it just keeps the muse there and then I take so the, a- the meditation sort of it, it like builds a a container. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. 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 And so then I take a quick shower. I grab my breakfast and I do my morning pages for 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And as of recent, I guess like probably two years by now, I added in reading. So I'll do my morning pages and then I'll read a poem mm-hmm. or I will read one to two pages of a book that is similar in the, like, vibe and energy that I'm trying to, like, emulate. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a lot of, like, travel, memoir, something to help me be put in a place. Yeah, I remember in the early days of the pandemic when I was first getting to know this morning routine of yours— You picked up this book that you hadn't read in a long time called A Year in Provence. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what do you think what do you think called you back to that book at that particular time? I can't well, okay, what I love about that book is it's so funny, Sam, because I actually have started rereading it again. Mm. Um and it's twelve chapters every 
chapter is one month, and it's this English couple's experience of moving to Provence and dealing with these, like, funny French people mm-hmm. and all the shenanigans that they get into. It's a very light touch. Mm-hmm. But you definitely feel like, oh, my God, I'm in—like, it's a lot of house renovations, but it's like I definitely get the feeling of, like, I am in Provence right now. You feel and- like you're there. Because I I am somebody who I love to be completely immersed. Mm -hmm. So, and you and I have had very silly conversations around my, again, particularness of, like, I don't want to see anything about Christmas in July. Like, I don't want to see anything about Christmas until... Yes, Adrian has, has very strict rules about you can only listen to certain kinds of music, uh, in the fall think, or versus the summer. I'm not the only person who thinks that there are fall albums, you know. So <laughs> I, I'm not the only person who, but but when it comes to like, so I'm reading them only in the month because I want to feel, this is what I want is I want the fullness of October. I want the fullness of whatever place that I'm in. I want mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. I want every sense to be, more saturated because I just love feeling yeah. things. And then you want to choose, you want to choose art, mm-hmm. whether it's music or books or movies, that expands that feeling. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So I t- think I'm understanding that literally for the first time in this conversation. Well. <laughs> so I'm really glad that you brought up this idea of a year in Provence making you feel like you were there. Because the other thing that was going on for me at this time when we were upstate and in quarantine and you were working on Strangers Abroad is that I was, for the first time, I had listened to some episodes of Strangers Abroad before our first date because I wanted to get a sense of who you were. Wait, for real life? Wait, I did not know that. I never told you that? No. Oh, yeah, I definitely did that. Oh, my God. Um, So I had listened, you know, I had like jumped around a little bit in your existing seasons to oh God. to hear what, wow. what you had done. And then as we were quarantining, you were releasing these, these new episodes. And so I was listening to them as they came out. And so I was getting a more consistent sense of your creative voice mm. in sound. And the thing that struck me the most was that you had this way of writing the places that you had been. I'm thinking specifically of, you talk about arriving in Ireland and walking down an old street and the Mm -hmm. colors of the doors. Mm. And I don't even know if it's something that you think about consciously, but you have this, this, I think, really remarkable ability to make a listener Mm -hmm. feel like they are looking out through your eyes Mm -hmm. as, as you take them to a place. Um, and I didn't know until until this moment that, that that was something that you resonated with from a year in Provence. Thank you. I think it's one of the things that is most potent about what you're doing mm. in A Race Around the World. So mm. talk about how you came to the idea of... Because you, you were releasing this season at a time when... 
it, it was actually like basically not allowed to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you were doing this podcast that is all about how great the world is if you can convince yourself to get out and see it. Exactly. So yeah. beautiful irony. The universe is funny. So how did how did the idea of doing the story strike you? Well, I mean, this goes back to our your original question. So Sam and I are upstate and it's very peaceful. And so you and I would like put on our sneakers. We would go outside. We would like say hello to all the animals, which we gave personalities to. Like the ducks were always very busy. Mm-hmm. And shout out to Moon Baby. Sh- oh my God. Moon Baby was the fluffiest and most skittish, big squish of a sheep. And so we'd walk down this hill and we would be like, do we walk left? Do we walk right? And we would just take these long, like hour and a half long walks. And I mean, obviously, one of the things that I love about you is that like you and I can just talk forever. Our first date, I looked down and I was like, oh, my God, it's been six hours. Like, this is (laughs) crazy. So we're walking and I'm going to say it was May. I think that's right. I think that's right because because it was just starting to get warm. It was just starting to get warm. It was still a little chilly. It wasn't really green out. Like, I remember it still being that, like, old spring feeling where things have not really started popping off. And you had really gotten me on, like, turned on to all of these serialized podcasts, like, Mm -hmm. Tannis was an emotional life. Yes. Shout out to former Midnight Disease guest, Terry Miles. When Terry Miles said my name on this podcast, like I honestly, (laughs) I was biking and I like my, I was, my earbuds almost fell out of my ears. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) Terry. Um, So I was listening, but I also remember like you were just feeding me. So I feel like I had always been really into podcasts, but you started really getting me into serialized stuff and stuff that I had just never experienced before. So you were really feeding me a lot of like shrink next door and um, Mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. dark. Is that what it is? In Um, the dark. Yeah. Just all of these like one story drawn out and Strangers Abroad was a little bit more thematic so, but I was into the slow burn, you know, which was also something that I was listening to. Um, and <laughs> I liked the idea of, oh, how can I draw something out and plant stuff along the way and then have this like beautiful payoff? So the idea of creating like a very interwoven fabric between episodes was super enticing. Yes. And I just knew I was like jonesing to do a serialized show, even as I was like putting out Strangers Abroad, the second season, which was not getting any fucking traction because no one was interested in travel. Um, and right. right. And I think it, it probably bummed a lot of people out to listen to oh, probably. Uh, these these interviews that you had done with these intrepid globetrotters. Yeah. And if anyone knows me, I am a bummer of a person. So, <laughs> no. you know, <laughs> just kidding. No. Well, I just remember you really having to tie yourself in knots yeah. when you would come up with the narration because these were all interviews that you had done when it was possible to travel with people who were traveling yeah and then you were trying to write this narration that introduced them and Mm. 
basically said like, I know nobody can travel right now, but isn't it fun to think about when we could? Yeah. Here's this conversation I had. It, I just remember you really having to try to thread that needle. Yeah, I just, I remember thinking like, how can I do a travel story where I don't actually have to be anywhere? Yeah. And I don't remember what we said exactly, but I remember turning to you and being like, well, flashback to 2014, I was backpacking through Latin America. I was working on my first version of Strangers Abroad. Didn't even have a name yet. And I was interviewing strangers that I met along the way. And one of the strangers that I met was this man named Graham Hughes. And I met him on this archipelago, uh, Bocas del Toro, which is right off of in the Atlantic of um, Panama. And he's this like loud very like boisterous, joyful, ginger, British man. And the way that I met him was I was at this like hostel party and someone is saying that there's this guy here who has been to every country in the world without flying. And I was like, what? And then they tell me that the reason he's here is because he won his own island because he won the British version of Survivor and you get Wait. your own island. So he was like, oh, do I like... Is I, this like the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world? Like, who is this a guy? A little bit. A little bit. And so I'm like, I have to meet this guy. So I go up and I meet Graham. And I'm like, so I've heard all this wild stuff about you. I would love to hear the story. And I did not consider myself a writer at that point. I was so unbelievably lost as a person and he really picked up on that because he's like, I don't really like doing this whole like podcast interview thing, but you were interested in the story. And I was like, oh, you need to be interested in the story. OK. Wait, so wait, that wait. Was something- Explain that moment to me. He 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 was was he saying I don't usually consent to interviews, but because you asked me to tell you yeah. my story rather than just have a conversation. I think it was more like. You're interested in the story. You you seem to be interested in stories like mm-hmm. that I am very receptive to. So I just remember we had this long winding conversation and I he tells me about like other famous explorers and that there was this one woman who raced around the world once. And I can't even remember. I do remember him saying the name Nellie Bly. I can't even remember what specific parts of it that stood out to me. I just remember honestly having like a little like, oh, and then forgetting about it for six, five, six years. Mm -hmm. And but a seed was planted, apparently. Mm -hmm. And you and I walking on this dirt road. And at some point, one of us was like, oh, that would be a great series. And I started doing more research and was like, oh, it wasn't just one woman. It was two. One woman went east. The other woman went west. That's a beautiful narrative. Do you know what I mean? Like it would feel I think the story would be fundamentally different if like they both went in the same direction. But there's just like this is what I love about this story. It's a true story with like the most organic poetry to it. Yes. Okay. So, so this is this is the thing I I wanted to mention about this this period is I I feel like my memory of how you arrived mm. at the idea of doing this story 
lines up with almost everything that you have said, but with one exception, which is one of the things that I remember us talking about a lot on our on our strolls is what is the common feature amongst these serialized stories that we mm-hmm. like so much, whether it's a fictional story like Tannis or a real story like Shrink Next Door. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I don't remember which one of us said it, but one of us came up with this phrase, well, it's a story so good that you can't mess it up. You're so right. Yes. Oh, my God. I, and I still... We still say that. Yes, that that that, yes, that is, that is the, that's yeah, the yeah. thing in common is if if the story is so good that li- the worst storyteller could tell it and people would still be intrigued. Yes. Yeah. That is the secret sauce of all of these yeah. things because then it mo- then you know whatever you decide to put on top of it whatever whatever tone you decide to do it in however you decide to express it you just know that the bones of it are so rock solid yeah you can't mess it up and so we would on these walks oh you're so right you had expressed this interest in wanting to do some kind of serialized story but you were like what's my story so good it it can't get screwed up what is it what is it what is it and then i remember you mentioning this story of nelly bly that graham had told you and us like looking at each other and being like that's that's the story so good. Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't mess it up. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I don't want to blow past here is so much of what you did on Strangers Abroad was not just about solo travel, it was about solo female travel. Mm-hmm. And it was about the specifics of that experience. Yeah. And here was this story about these two women who must have had extremely similar experiences to ones that you had had in your own life, but 130 years prior to you doing it. That was what was so striking was that there's such an age gap. There's a technology gap. There is a social justice gap between Mm -hmm. me and these women. Mm -hmm. And they emotionally went through the same stages that I went through. Yes. And I was like, what the, what, you know? Uh, This is what I remember thinking. It's a story so good you can't mess it up. And it's Adrian's story. Oh, honey. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I'm serious. That to me was the, the alchemy moment of like, this is something that you have to do is it's not this, it's, it's not just that you found a story that is really, really good and couldn't believe somebody hadn't already done a podcast about it. Yeah. It's that all of those things were true and there's arguably not very many people on the planet who are better qualified to tell it than you are oh, because me. you have lived many of the experiences yeah. that they have lived. You have traveled, if not 100% around the world, to dozens of countries by yourself and you are a storyteller and podcaster. Yeah. And I think that's why I, this working on it has felt so personal because I think if I'm actually really admitting it, like it is my story masked over, you know? Yeah. Um, But it's, I I do want to say that like, I think there are three stories that are really difficult to tell because they feel like explaining an inside joke, drug experiences, dreams, and travel because the Mm -hmm. emotional journey you go on when you travel is so personal and it's so heightened because you are out of your environment. So everything, again, going back to like 
enhancing the feeling. Like I love being in a completely different space because I love picking up on whatever that, I'm so sorry I'm about to say this word, I love picking up on that vibration because it is a different energy. Like it is undeniable that Mexico City feels completely different than Hanoi, Vietnam, and feels completely different than Prague. Of course. Czechia, you know, so that... That on top of what you are personally feeling, and sometimes that is, oh, my God, I met the best people. I'm hanging out. We're having such a blast. Like, they get what I'm doing to, oh, my God, I've never been more lonely than mm-hmm. right now in this moment when I am thousands of miles away from everybody that I know. Um, and I, f- I, I can't speak to men's feelings, obviously, but I think that there's also such a difference with women because— Historically, um, we're not encouraged to flex our independence. And when you Mm -hmm. actually get a taste of how strong you are, it's scary. Well, go back to this idea that you just mentioned about why it's so hard to tell travel stories. Because that's a very fascinating thing for you to say as the host of a long-running podcast that aims to tell travel stories. Well, it's like, you know, that's my Sisyphus uh, curse is like just... Yeah. But but to this day, I think it's really hard because it's just so personal and people shut down. They don't Mm -hmm. know how to relate to it. Yeah. They think you're bragging or it sounds like you're bragging. Yeah. I remember coming back from my first really big trip Uh, I studied abroad in Prague, and it was the best thing I had ever experienced. And I was such a fundamentally different, more confident person exiting that experience. And I did it in the spring semester, and then I went home, and I had no one to talk to. And I had a very isolating experience, and maybe subconsciously— I have been making this show so other people can hear it and be like, somebody else gets it. Because it is a feeling, it is it is so ineffable of, like, the changes that you go through. But, like, and that, I just don't feel like our language extends that far. And yet, Adrian, and yet you have made your artistic career largely centered on the attempt to capture in language yeah. what you have just said is is nigh impossible to capture in language and i and and for me it comes back to this idea of you in the way that you write about places because this is what's this is what's really fascinating to me about what you have said is you have set up this almost impossible challenge for yourself, right? <laughs> to to put into words that which is almost impossible to share uh, through words. And I don't know if this is a direct byproduct of that, but what I appreciate about the way that you write about travel is you don't try to write the feelings. You write the specifics and you write mm. them very eloquently, you write about the way, the, the, the weight with which bags hang on the body. Mm. You write about uh, the, way, the, the smells that are wafting out of cafes in certain towns. You write about the experience of taking a wobbly step off of 
a large boat onto a smaller boat that's going to row you to shore. You write about the colors of the jewelry in women's ears and how they Mm. differ from place to place. You hone in on these very, very, very fine details. And I think what that enables is that then, whether you're writing about your own travels or the travels of Nellie and Elizabeth, when you then tell us that they are feeling something, it's extremely relatable, actually, Mm -hmm. because it feels motivated by a very specific experience that you have taken us through with them or with yourself. Thank you. The feeling that I'm always going for that I love and have only been able to access through travel. And like, granted, I've never been pregnant or had a child, so I can't, I can't equate birth to this, but I don't know. There is this feeling when you're out there and you've been doing everything by yourself in a country where you don't speak the language and you're just like, surviving if not like thriving in it and you just realize that like oh other people on the side of the planet have like the same exact like motivations desires that i do even though like our cultures are very different even though our languages are very different honestly i just really feel like travel it it, i don't want to be a pollyanna because i know that like not great things happen and not great things have happened to me because i've gone out and traveled but like i it has always restored my faith in humanity. I think, honestly, I think I actually feel like connected to God in a way where I do feel this other, there is the energy of the place that I'm in, Mm -hmm. but then there's this like deeper vibration that makes me feel connected Mm -hmm. and safe and part of something yeah so much larger than i can i will never be able to comprehend from the acre home that i grew up on and like that is worth everything that's worth the 18 hour flights mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the food poisoning and getting your passport stolen and breaking up with your boyfriend in mexico like that's mm-hmm. well, it's the best feeling I think in that vein, it, it actually really, I, th- I think what you said actually makes it make a lot of sense why it would be so difficult to explain the experience of traveling and having your, your world transform to people when you come back from those travels, because it's very difficult to, like, it, you can't really explain religious experiences to people. They're not... Yeah tangible or rational things it's it is spiritual yeah and And i think that maybe that's like why going back to you talking about i i was a little like i don't know how to respond to like the way that i write because like that's how i write and like i don't want to say i don't put a lot of intention behind it but like when i want to describe a scene it is like a puzzle in making sure that like all of the pieces are there and that has to account for senses and physical feelings and the weather what kind of environment i'm in because i think that's like the closest way i can get people 
on to my side is like, hey, I'm just actually walking down this street and this is what I'm seeing. But describing the differences, I think, is what is exciting to me is really trying to get down to like, okay, well, like, what kind of wood is this? You know, Mm -hmm. in the Race Around the World show, I went down a really intense rabbit hole of making sure that in every place they go to, they have the right birds singing because I don't want just some copy paste chickadee sound if they're in Singapore because I'm like, I don't know if chickadees, I want that bird, you know, mm-hmm. so I want to make mm-hmm. sure that like it it just adds another layer of color. Um, so I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's I learned really quickly that if you talk about travel in a certain way, people clock out. Mm-hmm. So I guess I've based an entire career off of how can I talk about travel in a way that people won't ignore me? Um, <laughs> and But well, do it in a way that's like, hey, I'm I'm on your level here, you know? When you make an episode of Strangers Abroad, whether it's a race around the world or, or the previous seasons, do you feel like you're talking to fellow travelers or do you mm-hmm. feel like you're talking to people who don't travel? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I'm talking to myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because ultimately, I am making art for myself because mm-hmm. it's something that I need to get out of my body. Mm-hmm. And if people like it, great. Mm-hmm. If they don't, that's fine, you know. Mm-hmm. And But I want to do honor by the people who have traveled and trying to level it in a way that is not pretentious Mm -hmm. so people can continue to, so people can feel inspired to go out and travel because I I really feel like now more than ever, we're so, ironically, we have like the best technology to go around the world and yet we feel so isolated. Yeah. Um, And I know that that's like, a money and a privilege thing, but also like capitalism, um, tax the rich, eat the rich. Um, <laughs> and but I really do believe that, like, if Americans went to one very different country at least once in their life and they didn't do a resort, you know, mm-hmm. they really interacted with the locals. I really feel like so much of this tribal nonsense mm-hmm would fade a little bit. Um, So if you feel like the project of travel storytelling for you is talking to yourself, is externalizing feelings that and stories that you have inside of you because it feels like you you have to do that. Mm -hmm. What was it about this story that it felt so imperative to get out of your body like what what was it about this that that you felt like it was it was most important to express i think this story was more me stepping into telling stories and they don't have to be my own Mm. and being able to like be somewhat steeped in it but not completely Steeped in it, but not completely because it's informed by your experience, but it, exactly. But it's not your experience that you're... Exactly. So uh. I think I was more just like, sometimes I, I just am so in my head all the time that I'm like, I don't want to think my own thoughts anymore. Being able to be in other people's heads is a nicer place to be sometimes 
-hmm. because it gets me out of my head. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, I also just wanted that as a pandemic project because I was so in my head then. Uh And I was just like, I'm only one person. And I was 30 at the time. And there's only so many stories that are in me. Mm-hmm. But there are so many more stories that are out of me. And I just, I think I wanted to be able to, I think I wanted to step into the pool, yeah. the shallow end, and be like, can I do the stories that are outside of me? Because I am so comfortable in memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of more of, can I do stories that are not about me? Because there's only, memoir mm-hmm. is also weird because you, like, cannibalize your life. Yeah. So, Do you feel like steeping yourself in the solo female travel experience of these two other women, treating their stories the way you have historically treated your own stories, did it change your perception of the experiences that you have had as a traveler? Oh, my God, yes. So humbling. Because, like, I have might all. You know, like, (laughs) I have compression socks. I can fly, for God's sake. And Nellie never got to fly, and she always dreamt of it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm always like, you know, when I get on a plane, I'm like, I'm doing it for you, girl. But (laughs) there are so many conveniences that I have, and it's so easy to go to Australia. And one of the things that I cut from the show is... A little intro I wrote is that once the British discovered Australia and decided it was a great place to put their criminals, they strangely gave the criminals an option. They could be hung for their crimes or they could go to Australia. And most people were like, I'd rather be hung because that is how long it's and like painful. Cake or death? Uh, death, actually. A death, please. Exactly. I use the cake first. Um, no cake. No one got cake here. It mm-hmm. was only death. Because honestly, it was basically th- what they were saying is, do you want a long death or do you want a quick death? Because mm-hmm. it, right. back then, Suez Canal, this is like 1600, so like Suez Canal is not broken open, which means that there are no shortcuts, which means that If you are in England, you have to sail totally south, then hook left at the bottom of Africa, and then come up again through the Indian Ocean. It, like, took three months. Mm -hmm. And most female criminals would literally, like, hook up with a soldier and just have, like, feigned Stockholm Syndrome because then at least she had a protector and other men wouldn't rape her. Like, it's... So fucking fraught. Yeah. And I can fly to Australia and I just watch Game of Thrones the whole time. Like, that is a very different privilege and experience. You're like, I was on a plane for a whole day. A whole one day. Do you know what I mean? Like, it it has for sure put things in perspective for me. And Mm -hmm. another thing that I really wanted to, like, at least tip my hat to are all of the people who are, like, silently quietly helping push other people around the world. So, like, that is anybody who is, like, the Laskers who are on the boats throughout the Indian Ocean who are basically indentured servants from South India um, and Southeast Asia. And they're cleaning, getting the boat going. Um, You know, there are so many people who are doing these 
ostensibly small things, invisible things that I never see, but I get direct benefit from. Mm -hmm. And I very much believe in if I am out in the world, then I am contributing to a domino effect that I will never know the full consequences to. Mm -hmm. And I just want to be aware of it, that my presence and everyone's presence or lack of presence impacts what is going on and helps it make your travel smooth or not so smooth. So what do you feel like your connection with each of them was when you started writing Mm. the series? And how did that change over the course of it? Oh, I love that. I do kind of think I am equally half of both of them because Nellie is so about action and characters and stakes. And Liz is a poet at heart. um, And she will describe a scene in like the like her describing her seeing Mount Fuji for the first time is like it's prose, but it should be a poem, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I I like to think I don't know if I always get there, but I like to think that I enjoy combining those two writing styles. Like in my own writing styles, I do always want to make sure that I am moving through the story. I am moving through a world. We have a destination to get to, but I also do want to stop and look at the orchids. But also, I'm trying to be really cognizant that, like, you know, I have been rereading a lot of their original text this one last go-through, and, like, I have kind of created two different people than how they organically portray themselves uh-huh. yeah. in their own books. And that is like, ultimately, I think that it is because this is my story masked. Yeah. And I have probably manipulated it to be more about like, well, this is why I think they're feeling. I think sometimes I forget that they actually were living beings. Mm. And it's really easy to be like, well, it was such a long time ago that it's easier to just turn them into characters because characters are more easy to manipulate than actual people, right? Yeah. But I don't have them. I don't have them. They're Mm -hmm. long gone. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, I don't know if that's just like a product of the brain, a product of just like writing, but I definitely have found this like, remember, that was a real person. Okay, so last question. The thing that I think is really remarkable about this story is that, the standard to which Nellie and Liz are held is 80 days to get around the world. Mm -hmm. And they are held to that standard because Jules Verne wrote this work of speculative fiction Mm -hmm. that became a hit. And that somehow became the standard by which these actual people (laughs) were going to be judged whether they could get around the world in that amount of time. So... There's this work of speculative fiction. There are these two women who actually did the trip. Mm -hmm. And yet you're telling this story because most people don't know this story. Yeah. So what would be your dream for the legacy of this project? Like, what, what would you hope to transform about the way people think about travel by dint of listening to the story of two women who actually did it, mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking they understand it because they've read the fictional version. 
Well, you know, ultimately, I want to be able to sell merch that's like, are you a Liz or are you, are you a Nelly? <laughs> okay. You know? Great. So this is really just... It's, uh, a, it's, it's all capitalism, it's baby. A lost, it's a lost leader to sell I'm some I'm the rich that needs t-shirts. to be eaten. Exactly. Okay. Um, I think something that also so strikes me about this story is that hearkening back to the previous... One of the previous questions of, like, how has your travel changed is they did the actual impossible at a time where women did not do this. Like, they are the stray anomalies, you know, like... And I, I do also want to say that, like, that is, like, a classist, say, like, sentence, too. Like, poor women were definitely emigrating to America by themselves. Um, but both of them grew up dirt poor, you know, and they mm-hmm. both really elbowed their way up to becoming paid professional writers. So I just... <sighs> Like, your biology shouldn't dictate your fate because I think ultimately it is a disservice to humanity and our progress to hold people back of any identity because there's like a story associated with X group that they are not good at X. So then we create systems that thwart them from, be- you know, like it is mm-hmm. a disservice to us as a species and so when when it comes to women specifically, like, there is this suffocating message that you need to be X, Y, and Z. And when you go and travel as a solo woman, it breaks all of those stories in half. They crumble. I travel because I can hear my voice the clearest. Mm. And I hear parts of my voice that I never here back home because I'm in this like routine and I'm on my own little hamster wheel. But when I leave, I can really hear what I want. Not Adrian the female, not any of that stuff. And travel allows you to like actually consider what you want and what is the way that you actually really want to live. And I think another thing is like, there's just this idea that like women have not contributed to history. And It is a bold-faced lie, and it's my fucking duty to, like, write us back into history. If the upshot of this podcast is that it is part of building a world where everyone, especially women, is able to live the life that glimmers inside of them. I don't know how anybody could not want to uh, check out that show. Thank you, honey. I wouldn't have been able to do it without you. And I mean that so sincerely. It was a pleasure to watch you do it. Thank you, honey. That's another episode of Dingmantics in the Books, my friends. Thank you for listening, and if you are intrigued by what Adrian had to say about a race around the world, why not subscribe to it wherever you are listening to The Midnight Disease? I thank you so much for being here as always, and as always, I would love to hear from you about anything that you have heard on the show today or anytime. midnight at walt.fm. We'll be back with another great conversation next week on Wednesday, and until then, keep driving.
You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.